Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on the opioid crisis during the holidays. A stressful time for all, but especially those in recovery and some have to make choices. I have to separate myself from you because I'm going to die if I don't. The triggers that can cause problems. Here we are at the holidays. I don't want to be isolated. And ways to open the door to loved ones in crisis. Rejoice in the fact that your loved one is alive and with you and able to celebrate. We help families develop a plan. Two women have vowed to take on and battle Philadelphia Sheriff Joel Williams. It's always been a lot of promises that have been empty. I want to change the narrative. There are reasons for stepping up and why, if either wins, they make history. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the uptick in overdoses that tends to happen around the holidays. This week, the Wolf Administration executed Stop Overdoses Pennsylvania. Get help now. That's a multi-agency effort to fight the opioid epidemic by reducing the stigma of addiction and much more. The nasal spray version of naloxone was given out free at more than a dozen locations in Philadelphia. Part of the effort is educating families on how to cope during the trigger-heavy holiday celebrations and for those in recovery how to plan for the extra stress so that relapse and overdose become less common. With me at the studio to discuss this flashpoint is David T. Jones, Commissioner of Philadelphia's Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disability Services. We also have Maggie Hunt, Director of Alumni Relations at Retreat in Lancaster County. He's been in recovery for almost 10 years. And finally, we have Trish Kinkle. She's a safe injection site advocate who helped her husband into recovery. Everyone, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank Thank you. you. Trish, we were talking off mic. You made the commitment to your husband that if he took this road to recovery, you would not leave him. We did the How same thing that we would always do. We focused around holidays. We're still a family. You're you're battling and you're struggling and you're in this fight, but we're still a family. And I, when I look at you, yes, this addiction has its grips on you, and there's some really negative things that are coming from that. But I still see the man that I know that you are, and I constantly restated that over and over again and made sure that I reaffirmed that in him every time he relapsed or every time things got hard to remind him I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. Um, and however long it takes, I'm going to walk alongside you. And again, that that came with limits. I mean, if he just kind of was going to throw his hands up and say, I'm going to do what I want and I you can't stop me, that would be a different story. But for him, it was he constantly push forward and push forward. And I said, as long as you keep pushing, I'm going to be here. And I'm a really strong believer in the non-tough love. Um, and I had a lot of people telling me, like, you've just got to cut him off and and turn your back, you know, let him know I can't accept this and, and you're out of here. And I knew from the beginning that if I did that, he would be dead. Um, if he did not have our family supporting him and the future in mind, if he didn't have hope for a future, then there was going to be nothing for him to fight for. And so I made sure that he always knew that he had hope for a future with his family if he just kept fighting. It's a very tough 
addiction to, to really kick and to stay in recovery. It's every single day. And so how do people deal with folks? Trisha said, you know, she makes the space by saying, I'll stay here with you as long as you keep trying. There Are there other methods as well to sort of uh, make the space um, to keep people in recovery? Yeah, I mean, in my experience, my mom kind of did this, this, a similar thing, but she definitely tough love. Uh, you know, like you cannot live in this house and use substances. You can, you know, there was a lot like she would say, I'll support you in any way you want when you like go to treatment and when you get sober, but I am not going to support you at all in this addiction. So she would make my life really hard. Right. So she would take my car. She would take my cell phone. I wasn't able to have any of the things that she paid for, which was like nothing because I was like 19, 18, 19 at the time. So she made life really hard, which in turn kind of helped me to see that I should do something different. But I didn't go to treatment one time and stay sober and and like life was really great. I mean, like I got arrested in Kensington. I like went to treatment 10 times. I did many different programs in which I thought was going to be the means and ways of me getting sober and nothing really worked until like the end of the road, like I, I overdosed from heroin and um, I finally like did some kind of aftercare and I started going to meetings and I stayed sober since then. That was in July of 2009. You took it upon yourself <laughs> to sort of um, to, to move to the next level. It was hard for me, though, because my father also used substances as well, um, the same kind of substances as me. And so we would use together. My parents were divorced. Um, so it was very confusing because I have to, like, be one way with my mom and another way with my dad. Like, I would go into treatment because my mom told me to. And then, like, I would get out of treatment and, like, use with my dad. So it was really hard for me until I was able to set boundaries and say, like, I can't talk to this. Like, people, places, and things. I have to separate myself from you because I'm going to die if I don't. Um, but still keeping up with the supportive family that I had on my mom's side as well. And so, yeah. So, David, I want you to come come back to the plan. I mean, you hear, can you talk about two plans because there's... The plan for the family, you know, and then there's a plan for someone in recovery. You heard part of the plans just in terms of how both Trish and Maggie talked about it, right? I mean, you you heard the the plan around, you know, so Trish talked about being very supportive of her husband, uh, figuring out, you know, communicating, saying that, you know, we are going to be here for you and here's what we expect from you, right? And so that kind of communication, that kind of consistency, yeah. uh, that is, you know, that's a that's a plan that helps. And and part of it, you know, it, it's it's further complicated by um, there's times where I mean we've been talking about kind of the addiction piece of the disease, but you know there's also sometimes uh, mental illness accompanies as well, right? And so you can have someone who is experiencing anxiety. You can have someone who is experiencing depression. And so, you know, it's really important, too, to make sure that uh, that people have uh, all of the uh, kind of uh, treatment options available to them. You know, so a person is experiencing opioid use disorder, we know that the gold standard for treatment is medication-assisted treatment. Right? Yeah. So whether that's methadone, uh, suboxone, um, buprenorphine, Vivitrol, uh, along with um, a, a therapy, like that combination and that treatment is really kind of helps people on their uh, both their pathway to recovery and actually kind of helps to sustain, if, if you will, kind of long-term recovery. That's also kind of part of, you know, obviously working a plan if you're a person that uh, is in active ad- addiction. Beyond that, I think part of what you also do is just, you know, they're, they're very practical. The practical love is, so what is really going to work yeah. for me in terms of helping me to sustain myself? And then, you know, what makes me feel good? So sometimes it really is also... Things like, you know, so I may want to volunteer, right? I mean, it may be that I'm at a place now where I'm, 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 I'm feeling good about my recovery. 
Uh, I don't necessarily have people that I'm connected with um, from a family perspective because some of those bridges have been burned. But we, again, we're here we are at the holidays. I don't want to be isolated. And so, you know, maybe I volunteer at a shelter, whether that's a shelter for people or I volunteer at a shelter for animals. It's those kind of things that you put in place before you get to the situation in terms of holiday that really helps you to be. Kind so of you won't are not in that depressed space. But I think also, is it a time because people do tend to seek out their family? Is it a time when families can be alert and possibly open the door for their loved ones that they haven't seen you know, in quite some time, and and how do you how do you capitalize on that moment, on that interaction? Well, and I think if the person's early in recovery too, go, going to see their family, they should be encouraged by their family and be proud of their sobriety. The stigma of getting sober is starting to to dissipate a little bit in terms of people mm-hmm. in recovery. Like people want to be proud of you that you're getting sober. They want to see you succeed. So I think using that kind of language with them and, and helping them to motivate them to stay sober also would help. Yeah, it's a joyous time. I mean, you know, if you if you have someone in your life that has struggled with substance use disorder and they found a way to to get into recovery and you get to celebrate with them in the holidays. I mean, and that doesn't discount, you know, if, if there's some bridges that have been burned or some difficult things that that maybe you need to work through. Holidays are not the best time to do that. Rejoice in the fact that your loved one is alive and with you and able to celebrate, um, you know, and work through that other stuff in, in time. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it's also a time too where, you know, even as we talk about family, uh, family is is more widely defined. You know, mm-hmm. so it could be, you know, biological family, it be it could also be family that's been selected, right? And so that you have actually developed pretty significant relationships with and those could be folks who are part of your recovery journey, you know, and and so you think about that and I think those are the people then that you really try to connect with through the holidays. With the recovery community, especially around the holidays because everybody knows there's like Many support networks that you can go to. There are meetings that you can go to that are literally 24 hours a day, 2 o'clock in the morning, whatever. And that they will, they welcome you in as family as well, whether or not you're one day sober or five years sober. They, they will welcome you right in. And I wonder, is this a time, too, for people to have this conversation with the younger folks, too? Part of the way that you reduce the stigma is by informing people. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. so if you're having conversations with those young people early to say, OK, so these were decisions made. Uh, these, this was actually also part of uh, kind of a, you know, a, a, an illness, a disease. Um, it's not a moral failing. Um, and these kind of things happen and, and folks go into treatment. They get better. They go on. They live you know, a great life. Uh, that that is part of kind of what happens. And in, in some cases, really, it's not much different than. If you had, you know, um, a, a disease like uh, of the heart or disease of any other organ, you get, you seek treatment, you get better, you move on. And so informing young people about that that was kind of the, the course of the process really is helpful because, again, it, it both stimulates conversation, but it educates in a way that then reduces the likelihood that they treat that one uh, family member with kind of with this kind of stigma, if you will, in terms of, you know, kind of the shame that sometimes has been associated with the illness. And I think that when you do talk about it, it like it brings people to the surface. So you might not know that, le- you know, that one of your cousins is struggling. And when you say like, hey, I'm in recovery, this is what my life looks like now. Like I don't have to live this way anymore. They might not come that day or that month, but like they're going to remember that and they're going to reach out to you months later um, when they are ready to get help. And then like you can be that role model for them. You can be that example for them of what recovery looks like. Yeah. I mean, I do think a lot of it depends on the individual. And I would really want to encourage family members to treat 
treat their individual as an individual. So this all sounds great. And I know my husband, that would that's something that he would definitely be interested in with our family. But I wouldn't want to put that on someone if that mm. isn't something that they're interested in or if that's not the place that they're in with their recovery. I mean, I think one of the things that we've realized um, with the research and the things that are coming out in recovery is it's very individualized. Every person is different and there isn't one set method that works for everybody. AA works great for a lot of people. It's not a good fit for other people. And so we want to make sure that you're looking at the individual and saying, okay, what do you need? What's going on with you? What can we do to support you? Would this be helpful for you or would that hurt you or bother you? Because if it's going to, then we're not going to do that. Yeah. And I think it's a time, too, for people to be more open minded Mm -hmm. and forgiving and loving, because I feel like there are hurt, hurt feelings sometimes between someone in recovery and their family members. And the holidays brings that up. Should people, you know, sort of deal with their stuff, you know? Well, and I would say that people should be dealing with their stuff every day. Let me just be clear about that. There's an opportunity. But the holiday right. forces you to do it, right? <laughs> well, and I think that if, you, if you're going to a family party and you know that there's going to be like th- things like this that come up, you should have like a couple people in your phone that you can call that you that they know you're going to this party. They know that they're expecting a call so that you can call them for support in that type of situation. Kind of gives you like a little bit of a timeout where you can just kind of step away, talk to your, you know, somebody on the phone about what you're feeling instead of talking about it with somebody who might not understand and say the wrong thing to you. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a lot of, as you mentioned, there's there's a lot of triggering moments. Um, you know, just from, you know, there's drinks everywhere, there's triggering conversations, history and all those uh, things. Are there is there a time to avoid the, you know, interactions with certain people? Is that ever recommended? I would definitely say if you're a family member um, who's been affected by someone in um, with substance use disorder and you you don't think that you can see that person right now, you're still really angry and frustrated and bitter about how they hurt you. It's completely understandable emotion. You most likely have every right to feel the way that you do, but maybe you shouldn't go to the holiday party if you don't think you can see that person without having to confront them because the holidays, everybody's already on edge. And so if you have someone either active in addiction or maybe early in recovery, a confrontation like that, an unexpected confrontation like that could trigger a relapse um, or trigger them going deeper into addiction in a way that no matter how angry you are, you probably don't want that to be the result. If you don't think you can can be rejoicing with the person that they're there with you, maybe you shouldn't go to that party. Yeah, and should individuals in recovery sort of, of do the same? Yeah, I mean, it's okay for the individual to say, like, I'm just not ready to go to this family party yet. Um, and, and the family should also, like, be understanding of that as well because sometimes family will be upset that they don't want to come um, but if they set that boundary, they say, I'm just not ready to go right now. Like that, you know, that's OK, too. They're like creating a safeguard for themselves. And it's sort of you have to forgive yourself. Yeah. I mean, when people get into recovery, like one of the biggest things that they have to deal with is the guilt, like you said, with of all the things that they did when they were active in their addiction. And that can be overwhelming. And that can be one of the things that leads to relapse if they don't have people in their life that constantly remind them that, yeah, you did that and you need to deal with that and however you need to, but that's not who you are now and encouraging them to move forward. Yeah. And I think that what the message really about an individual prioritizing their recovery is absolutely the most important message. And so that it's like, okay, so this is a time where I'm putting myself first in terms of my recovery during the holidays. And I think that's critical. And then I think the obvious, but it's worth stating is that you also do want to avoid those places where 
you know that others may be using, right? So it, it's not as if we, you, when you go to, we think about family and we think about holidays, that there are places that are, you know, kind of medication-free. There are places where, you know, and there are times where we have family members, again, who may engage in kind of excessive drinking. We may have family members who, uh, in fact, are, again, actively using themselves. And while we certainly would want all those individuals to have a pathway to treatment, you wouldn't want to put yourself in a situation where, you know, just to be with family, you're you're in that environment that, again, could very easily trigger relapse. Do you all feel hope? Do you feel like this hands-on-deck approach is working? I mean, I think so. I think that people in recovery are, like, all, you know, like, especially when Narcan was being handed out to people on the streets so that they could have it. My whole news feed is all people, like, mostly people who are in recovery, and everybody was just, like, rejoicing at this moment, like, whether or not they were going to get the Narcan or not, because it's a big deal. Like, they, like, this is a big turn in the drug and alcohol like in drug and alcohol program and the initiative, like we are go- definitely going in the right direction. We still have a lot to, we still have more to grow, but we're definitely going in the right direction. Yeah. And there are a lot of resources out there for folks yeah. at this time. There, there really are. And, and I would say, I'm, so I, and I'm feeling very hopeful. I mean, I think that we have uh, people with lived experience um, who are uh, actually, you know, uh, doing warm handoffs, mm-hmm. um, you know, so they are um, in the emergency department, um, they are uh, doing helping um, individuals who uh, candidly who had overdosed over uh, on the streets and had those um, as we heard earlier had those overdoses reversed with Narcan. Mm-hmm. We, we're seeing them get those individuals connected to treatment. Um, we also um, have um, you know, and, and and I should just say we we you know we have um, uh, the access point over at. Fifth and Spring Garden that's operated by NET. It operates um, 24, 24 hours, hours, seven yeah. days a week, 365. So anytime an individual is feeling like they need to go in, want to go in, um, get an assessment, uh, get connected to treatment, again, for substance use disorder, that's available. Um, and we have, you know, 800 numbers, which I'll provide a little later. So I, I will say that I think we, you know, I, I am feeling very hopeful about the way our system is evolving and how people are, are, you know, getting connected and participating in treatment. And I will say one of the things that I learned about opioid addiction is that there is a window. And when that window comes and someone wants help, you got to jump on it and be ready. And so families arm yourselves with the information in case your loved one comes to you and says, okay, it could be the day that, that everything changes. Absolutely. I mean, I definitely encourage family members to um, be educated as much as possible um, about the programs that are available, about what it actually looks like. I mean, that was one of the biggest challenges for me um, in the first part of my husband's addiction was even though I'm a social worker, I was very clueless about a lot of things and about a lot of how the processes work. And, okay, I dropped him off at treatment. What next? And what do I? what happens after this? And how do we even find a treatment facility? And um, so I think that's huge because, like you said, when, when someone comes to you and says, I think I'm ready, you need to jump now. Um, and that doesn't mean that if they – that doesn't mean that they're not ready if you – can't take time. It means that they're ready right now and you need to get going. And if you can continue to make that movement towards recovery or towards treatment, they're going to be able to continue to make that walk. And it's one step at a time. But um, as long as, you know, they don't face barriers along the way, there's a huge opportunity and huge chance um, and huge reasons to hope. I mean, I, I think when you were talking about hope earlier, my husband every day is a reminder to me that there absolutely is hope out there. Yeah. And I'm glad. I mean, because I want to leave people, you know, this is Flashpoint, so we do wrap things up and I want to, you know, leave people with some resources. 
you know, give us some words of encouragement and um, how can we use this time right now to make sure that we continue to move in a positive direction? There are two numbers that I want to provide. One is um, we have uh, through uh, PROACT, um, they, it's um, peers that provide support to individuals in recovery and their family members. And there's a, a, a warm line, um, and that number for the warm line is 855-507-9726. I'll, I'll say it again. The, the warm line number is 855-507-9726. And it's an opportunity. You can call in. Uh, you can leave a message. Uh, they will certainly call you back. Um, and there's a place, an opportunity to get uh, connected. And just a place where if somebody just wants to kind of talk and and have someone listen, um, again, that, that, that's, a, that's a great opportunity and a great resource. Secondly, um, Community Behavioral Health, which is the uh, managed care organization uh, for the city of Philadelphia for people uh, that have both um, uh, substance use and, and, and mental illness, um, the, they, we oversee a, a provider network of over 175 providers. And so if anytime someone is looking to um, participate in treatment, the number is 888-545-2600. And again, um, I'll say that number, 888-545-2600. That number is uh, available and manned uh, or womaned um, 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And so it's a place you can call in and say, I'm looking for a treatment provider. I'm looking for this type of help. I'm looking for additional information about insurance, particularly if you um, are covered via Medicaid. That's the number to call. That's the number to call to get some help. And so, Maggie, you know, give us some final words here. How do we turn this normally time that we see this uptick in overdoses into a positive wave? Yeah, I mean, I think that recovery is possible. Um, there's many people who can can show you that recovery is possible, and there's so many treatment options as well. Like I work at Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, um, and we are an inpatient um, drug and alcohol facility, obviously. Um, we take pregnancy patients up to 35 weeks. Um, we take people who have had traumatic experiences and who also have um, behavioral health issues. Um, but that's that, that we're one treatment center in, you know, in a million, but I hope that if anybody needs help, like, they can call 717-859-8000. And even if we can't get you into treatment, like, we'll help provide resources to get them to where they need to go for sure. Wonderful. And finally? Well, I, I don't have any specific resources necessarily, but I just want to encourage everyone that there really is hope. People can and do recover. Um, and, you know, re- Recovery involves a lot of setbacks a lot of times. My husband had the same experience that Maggie did in terms of a lot of attempts. He had 16 detoxes in one year that we tried and three full-time 30-day treatment before something finally stuck. And um, he has been in recovery now for a while since then. And, you know, every every relapse felt like a setback. But at the same time, every day that my husband was alive was another opportunity to find healing and to find recovery. And he eventually did. And I truly believe that that is possible for everyone out there. So hopefully during the holiday season, as we talk about all these things, we can really hold on to and focus on that hope that's out there. There's a lot of hope. And I hope that everybody uses the holidays to focus on that hope. We will include a list of resources at kywnewsradio.com. I want to say uh, thank you to David Jones. Thank you to Maggie Hunt. And thank you to Trish Kinkle for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank, thank you. you. 
Next up, their run for the Philadelphia Sheriff's Office is historic. Do what needs to be done. You have to be prepared. The two women taking on embattled incumbent, Joel Williams. We'll be right back. But first, here's this week's Flashpoint on the Tweets with Flashpoint associate producer Brianna Bonds. Hey, Brianna. Cherry, that's right. We're taking it to the tweets. Getting your opinion on the Flashpoint topics everybody's talking about. So this week, we did a poll on the Empire Fox show. Um, his name is Clayton Prince. We had a Flashpoint extra on this, Cherry. And as you yeah. know, he's saying Empire is his idea. Yeah, it was a very interesting. If you haven't checked it out, please take a listen to the Flashpoint Extra, my sit-down interview with Clayton Prince Hanksley. He's a gentleman who claims that he pitched his story idea for a show called Cream to Lee Daniels, who is the producer of the hit show Empire That's on right. Fox. And he was shocked that a few years later, <laughs> Empire came on and it looked real similar to Cream, according to him. And, and doesn't this just sound like a movie, Cherry? You can just picture him <laughs> sitting on the couch and he turns on the TV and he's like... That's my show, supposedly. Yeah, supposedly. He lost <laughs> at the district court level, and he also <laughs> lost at the Third Circuit, but he is not giving up. He has uh, filed a writ for cert with the, the the U.S. Supreme Court, so we'll see if they let him in the door. But his he says that the characters are very similar. They both run hip-hop record labels. Okay. They both have some disease. Uh, wow. You know what? <laughs> I won't give break all the details. You gotta listen. You gotta listen. You gotta listen. But as you guys know, Cherry knows a lot about this subject. So make sure that you go ahead and listen. So on our poll, we really asked you guys if you even believe that it was a stolen <laughs> idea. And you know, because he's taking his his case to SCOTUS, so the options were yes, his story adds up. No, not enough proof. It's possible, and I don't care. So. <laughs> Again, you kind of had to follow this to to vote or comment. But so basically, you guys said, I don't care at 80 percent. We don't know, Cherry, what that means. So it, we I always say that every week, but we don't. We really should do some follow ups on some of these. But yeah. either you guys don't care about the subject and we need to find something better. Or you're saying I love Empire and I really don't care who made it. Yeah, it could be. And I think that's probably it. I mean, at this point, I mean, I will say in Lee Daniels defense, he's been sued multiple times for copyright infringement over this. And, uh, you know, Clarence is, I mean, Clayton is just one of the many. Um, but his, his scene, I mean, he did talk to the guy. He got okay. video of him pitching this thing. So we'll um, see. He's saying the proof. But um, 10% said, yes, his story adds up. And 10% also said it's possible. 0% said not enough proof. So, you know, we'll see. We'll try to follow up on this. And if even if we just tweeted out to you guys where this goes, but that's this week's Flashpoint on the tweets. Make sure that you subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. Look for the hashtag Flashpoint Poll. Talk to you guys next time. Bye.